A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have Julie Henry with me. Julie is the president of Finish Line uh, Leadership and author of Wisdom from the Wild. Good morning, Julie. How are you? Hey, I'm good, Chris. It's great to be here with you. Oh, it's this is going to be fun. So, uh, you know, you've got a really kind of cool story. I haven't spoken with somebody, and I'll lose, lose, use the term loosely. I haven't spoken to somebody who's a former zookeeper, of all things, Um Actually, much more than that, as we'll we'll hear in the story. Uh, but you have in this new book, you you've leveraged your lessons from animals into leadership techniques, and getting to this point had to have been a very very interesting path. How did you how did you even go down the path? What what made you decide to get into to the zoo and aquarium business? And you know, tell us a little bit because because I'd love the listeners to see, hear how you've you know, learned how you've become an expert on leadership from, from your history. Yeah. You know, to start that story, I have to take you back to the shores of the great lakes because I was a kid growing up in Chicago. My dad worked for the steel mills. My mom was a teacher and I was the kid growing up, um, you know, playing in the snow, but always dreaming of the sea. And uh, we lived in Chicago and then we moved to Cleveland. And when I moved to Cleveland, the lake was declared dead and the river had caught on fire. So this was in the middle of the eighties. And that started my curiosity about the environment. And I just started to really love science. And so I remember being in high school and dissecting a shark. And I remember thinking, this is fascinating. And I remember particularly dissecting the eye. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be an eye doctor. And then when I got into college, I went to college in Southern Ohio. I I went to work for an eye doctor and I thought, no, this is not Um, I don't, I can't flex my creative muscles enough. And then my parents happened to move to Sarasota, Florida. And they said, you know, Hey, there's a, there's a Marine laboratory and they need interns. And I thought, well, you know, here I am in Southern Ohio. Why don't I go down to Sarasota, Florida and uh, work for free for a summer, but work alongside amazing scientists. And it was there that I started to think about how can I stitch together my love of science, but I don't want to be a doctor. And I'm really not all that good at being a research scientist. I found that out too. It's just as important to know what you're not good at. (laughs) Um, And so I started to stitch them all together. How can I teach? How can I um, think about science? And then my dad ended up moving from the steel steel mills into leadership development. And so I always wanted to put the three of those things together. And my senior year in college, I decided, you know, I think zoos and aquariums is the road for me. Um, So getting in with so, so were you still at Miami of Ohio? I mean, even though you went down, so, so the, the college you went to was Miami of Ohio when you said Southern Ohio. And um, yeah. so you, did you end up graduating from there and, and you were making this decision right at the end? Yeah. Yeah. I came back up um, to Miami of Ohio. I interned at the Cincinnati Zoo. And so I finished my career in Ohio for school. Got it. Got it. And so, so what degree do you take forward to, to get into working in zoos? I mean, are, do they look for anything specifically or is it just... You get in and learn the business from there. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So my undergraduate degree is in zoology, and then I have another one in education because I wanted to stitch them all together, and that actually helped me get hired. Um, I actually ended up working in the education departments of zoos and aquariums because then I could work with more types of animals and more types of people. So it fed my curiosity muscle. Um, you know, there's nothing like learning how to handle cockroaches and snakes to really wake you up in the morning. Yeah, well, at least you weren't cleaning up after the elephants. <laughs> No, no, I, I, that was not for me. <laughs> so, um, so did you, was it, was it then the Cincinnati zoo that you went to or, or did you start moving around the country, the world, et cetera? Yeah. You know, I did an internship at Cincinnati zoo. In fact, I just was with them last week at a, at a conference reminding them like, gosh, remember in 1996, when I was asking you, how do you get to be where you are in your career? But I wanted to go back to Chicago because I'm from that area. And so I really wanted to work at shed aquarium. And that's where I was fortunate to land my, my first job, um, working on the floor of the aquarium, people from the bears games would come over and ask me questions about the beluga whales that I was standing in front of. And it was a dream come true for a pretty shy 22 year old kid. That's really funny because because I, I remember taking the kids there around the mid '90s and looking at with so living in Detroit we used to we used to go to Chicago quite a bit. I wonder if you ever uh, you ever presented to us. It's entirely possible. There was there was you know two point two million visitors a year. I got a lot of you walking through the door. <laughs> yeah, it is a small world, and so that then took you on. You know, tell us more about the path then because there's there's a lot of leadership that came and a lot of learnings. Yeah. So I was fortunate that at the time, um, the person who was the president CEO, Ted Beatty, was a marketing person by training. So he really had this team building culture um, that I just bought into hook, line and sinker. I wanted to learn what that meant. But also I was telling everybody in my leadership team who I worked for, hey, you know, I bet you there are some companies that want to come here and have retreats because we're a pretty interesting place. And if that happens, um, I want to be involved. And so, you know, six months later, Nabisco happened to call the aquarium because they have a huge manufacturing plant in Chicago and um, said, hey, we want to bring a team to the aquarium for leadership development and training. And they passed the phone to me. <laughs> and I, I talked to them and they said, what could you do? And I talked about using a coral reef as an analogy to help them with communication skills. And they said, done. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. And it was me and two of my mentors. And that was the first time I saw my actual ideas come to life that had started really as a senior year um, college project. Um, but now it was putting these ideas into action. And I just continued that on every place, every zoo and aquarium I went to, I kept beating that drum. Like, let's just bring some corporate clients in because it's uh, it's novel. Okay. So you just said something now I'm really curious about using the coral <laughs> reef as um, basically an example of, um, you said communication. Um, yeah. Okay. So tell me more. Cause I mean, as somebody who's a scuba diver too, I mean, you know, I, I look at coral and yeah, I know it's a whole bunch of, you know, small organisms that live together in a community, but tell me the communication analogy. Yeah. Okay. So you are a lot more enlightened than most people, right? Cause most people, if I were to show them a picture of a coral reef, but in this case, I actually took them down to our huge coral reef habitat in the aquarium. And we stood outside and I said, tell me what you see. And people would say, well, we see sharks and sea turtles and all of the big charismatic animals. And then when I would ask them, well, what is the organism that is, you know, the most dominant, the one that's alive? And they said, well, it's, it's coral. And so Right there, we started talking about assumptions first and we started talking about, you know, the things that catch our attention, the people that catch our attention or, or communicate the most dominantly are usually the ones that are big and flashy, like sharks and, and sea turtles. And we need those animals, of course. But who are the people on your team, in your organization that are the most overlooked, 
but are actually the foundational element. And if you don't recognize them or listen to them as much as you can, you know, many times these are the frontline workers in organizations, not only are you skipping over really important information that you could get for your process, but you're going to start to destroy your team culture a whole lot faster than you even realize. Because as you know, from scuba diving, corals are connected. So you have one little, one little piece that gets damaged and it, it spreads like wildfire. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and you got kind of to that next point is how fragile they are. And teams are just as fragile, really. We don't think of them that way, but they really are. Yeah. And there's so many assumptions we make, whether it's communication or in the book, I use coral reefs too, to talk about all the foundational aspects of a team because we just go so fast and we just assume, assume, assume. And it's not always, um, we, we don't do it on purpose. <laughs> We're just working really fast. But I can tell you, if you stop and think about a coral reef and really anybody can think about a coral reef, no matter if you're from Oklahoma or Tokyo, you can think about what a coral reef is all about. And that helps people think about teamwork in a new way. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So, so Shed Aquarium and you were there for quite a, quite a while, really, I think. Yeah, I was there for almost three years and really what happened is I was at a huge public aquarium. I told you 2.2 million visitors, but I really wanted to move to a smaller place and see science in action. You know, I wanted to see what a sea turtle looked like when she came up on shore and laid her nest, or I wanted to help tag sharks. I wanted to be where the discoveries were happening. And so that was a place called Moat Marine Laboratory at Sarasota. And they had three people in the education department. So when one person left, I thought, oh gosh, I got to go right now. (laughs) So I, I left. It was one of the hardest careers decisions I made um, because I loved Shed. I still love Shed. It's where my heart lives, but I loved the idea to come down and, and see science in action. I mean, this was science before you could even publish it or it was on the internet. Like the scientists were really like, we're not sure you can talk about that yet because we haven't published it in the paper, but if you keep it on the down low, it's okay. And I loved yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really quite a place. And I, I, I know that the topic isn't supposed to be moat marine, but I mean, I've been there by my, my it's, it was one of my son's favorite places as a kid when we go down to Florida to, to go to moat marine and um, really doing some amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and started by a woman who was, was told she shouldn't be a scientist because she was a woman in the forties. And so she was, was breaking barriers and transforming lives before, you know, I certainly was. So I learned from her too. It's a, it's a, a whole, again, maybe a little off our topic today, but it's, it is a great story of transformation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was so, I was so fortunate to be there. And then uh, was there, was there a stop after moat or so when, when did the, um, when did you start your current uh, finish line leadership? So yeah, I was at moat for almost five years and um, the executive director at the time said, well, Hey, there's this uh, rotary program and you might want to consider applying for this. And the first rotary program was to go overseas to Australia for five weeks and live in people's homes and learn about that. And so I did that. And then I had the opportunity to apply for another scholarship for graduate work in New Zealand. So when I was 30, I decided to leave everything behind Um my cats, my yeah. car, my, moved to the other side of the world with a, with a, you know, no internet and two TV channels. And, um, that was, that was an opportunity to restart. And I studied outdoor education and tourism and really got an education in how a tiny, tiny country deals with conservation and leadership in a totally different way. Yeah. And so it's, it's really, it's a great part of the world. Um, because so much of it is untouched too. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and they, 
what was formative to me from the transformation side is I came from, I was career building, you know, Mm -hmm. like I was climbing the ladder and I was on boards and I was a vice president and I was all the things, right. All the things that you should be that I thought in the American culture. And then I went over to New Zealand and they um, weren't that interested in any of that. You know, they just wanted to know me like, Hey, you know, it wasn't in the States. Hey, I'm Julian. What do you do? And then I answered the question and over in New Zealand, it was like, Hey, you want to talk about, you know, the hike you're going to do this weekend. I'm like, don't you want to know what I do for a living? And they're like, no, they just (laughs) were interested in a different connection. And that made me redefine how I define myself. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I spent a lot of time there, um, earlier in my career when we were, we were doing, um, a lot of franchise growth in Japan, the company I was with. And, and then, um, you know, I would get to Australia and, uh, we had, you know, stores going into Thailand, the Philippines, a lot of other uh, other places. I had friends in Australia that I would visit. And you get there and they really don't care what you do. It's it's a little different than here. You know, here it's it, it, the first conversation you have with somebody is what do you do and then you get to know them there. It's, you get to know them and then if you find out what they do so be it. Yes. Yes. And it was I mean it's jarring, isn't it? You get over there and you're like, uh, I don't know what to lead with. <laughs> well, so how do you think that makes their leadership different? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you were there learning, you got, you know, you're working on, on, you know, your certificate, your, your advanced education, all of that. Um, what were some of the lessons you picked up out of all of that? Yeah. You know, so a lot of like the biggest lesson I, I take, take from that is when I do leadership development. Now, one of the questions I ask people is how do you know who the leader is in the room without them saying they're the leader? right? And it's not always the loudest. We assume that there's so much we assume about leadership, but it's the way that they carry themselves. That's executive presence, but it's executive presence in a much um, different way. It doesn't always have to be the executive. You know, the person who's the leader is very often the person who's not on their phone or the person who's engaged in that conversation, who makes you feel like you're the only person in the room that they want to listen to, or the person who's on time for the meeting. You know, those are all qualities. I think that, um, is about being present, right? It's presence, but about being present. And that's what I took from New Zealand because I remember going over there with a, with a very, what I would categorize as American, um, you know, like, Hey, I need this tomorrow. I need this right now. Like I, I have to get this. I have a graduate project. And I remember them saying to me like, no worries. I'm like, no, 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 no worries, worries. And they're like, no. And I had to pause. Yeah, it's, it's a great lesson. And it's, it's funny because as you talk about that and you talk about the leader and the leader in the room, it gets me thinking about a concept we talk about the leader versus the manager. And mm. you know, what's the difference between a leader and a manager? And, and by the way, I'm not knocking managers or management. You need good management in organizations. But the manager is the person who's in control. The manager is the person who's making the decisions, whereas the leader is often delegating off decisions. They, they, they focus on results. They do operate at a high level. And you're right. I think it's easy to pick the manager in the room because they're the, they're, they are the loud ones. But picking the leader can be tricky. Yeah, I, I love that. And and the other thing that I tell them is, you know, walk in that room, whether it's a conference or whether it's something in your organization without name tags, right? Because the leader is not dependent on the fact that people know that they're the CEO or that they're the vice president or they're that the frontline supervisor. Pick, pick a job title, right? The leader is not defined by that. And the manager often is like they're just leading with that justification and, and you don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so you, you did this work and how, so how long were you over there? I was there for a year. 
and then back and then, over here. <laughs> yeah, then I then I came back to work for Bush Gardens, which was a huge oh, gosh, culture yeah. shift because I come back to work for a giant beer company at the time. So <laughs> I went from a very you know calm, if you will, society that didn't care about job titles to like ah, American culture on steroids. Um, yeah, it's, it's whole, whole management fit mentality there. Okay, so I want to hear more about that, but we're already up on our first break. So we're going to take we're going to take a couple minutes here. When we come back, I, I, I want to hear about, you know, what it was like working for the big company, because that, that would be probably the biggest that you worked for was would have been Bush or Anheuser-Busch. So let's um, let's uh, take a quick break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Julie Henry. So, Julie, before we went to the break, you were just saying that you went to work for Bush Gardens. And for anybody who doesn't know that, um, it's a giant amusement park in Florida. Do they have multiple locations? They do. There's one in Williamsburg as well. Okay. Yeah, I thought there was there was another one. And obviously, you know, though you might not be distributing beer, but that's the Anheuser Busch company. It's a it's a you so it had to be a little culture shock coming from small New Zealand and really a series of smaller companies. Even Shed was would be a small company compared to working under the umbrella of of an Anheuser Busch. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I went there for two reasons. One, I wanted to see what a zoo was like with an amusement park in its backyard and work for a corporation because I'd worked for nonprofits for eight years. But also I had a leader that I'd known since my days at Shed that I was going to get the chance to work for. And I am such a child of leadership development. And I knew that he and I would make a really good team because we had really complementary skills. And he's the kind of leader that um, I don't even think he sees boundaries. And if he does, he just smashes through them and his innovation yeah. is off the charts. And that's what I wanted to learn from. So, um, okay. So what was your role then when you, when you came to Bush Gardens, what, what did they have you doing? 
So I was managing um, education and conservation programs. And so it was everything from kindergartners to corporations who were coming in and um, not, I mean, sometimes learning the science, sometimes learning the, you know, science of the animals or the physics of the roller coasters. It was overnights. Um, and then it was still corporations coming in for, for leadership development training. So I was still testing out some of these um, skills, if you will, and these ideas and these stories. And I was partnering with other departments departments and, and trying to figure out novel ways to communicate because I just felt like, you know, my, my office was next to a 13 foot Burmese Python. Like that's unusual. And I would have sloths hang out at my office and turtles and, and think about, okay, how are these lessons that I can take and help people think about, um, you know, change in a new way. And so I did that at every chance possible. Yeah. And so, um, so, so a lot of animal exposure, obviously, and playing with animals, which must have been, you know, it must have had fun in your own right there. Um, mm -hmm. Were there any animals in particular that, that you thought, wow, these are really, really great, bring, bring some great skills, you know, if we translate them into how we act as humans, um, any in particular you love to highlight? You know, we had a huge African savanna. They still have a huge African savanna um, exhibit. And so I was particularly struck on the giraffes and how all of those animals, similar to how we were talking about the coral reef in the beginning, like the land version of that, if you will, is how everybody works together on a savanna. You know, the giraffes are the watchtowers and watching out for danger. And so who are the people in your organization that are the ones that are force, have the foresight and the vision and the innovation and, and looking out? Um, but then um, the zebras who have to work together for camouflage and confusing predators. Okay, so who are the people in your organizations that are better together as teams? And so that was a very direct um, link. And actually those ideas started way back at Cincinnati Zoo. I just got to keep working on them at Bush Gardens. Um, but the other thing I'll, I'll say too, is I realized really quickly that the similarities between a nonprofit corporation and a giant beer company, a giant for-profit corporation is people make distinctions all the time between right. nonprofits and corporations and there are, but really that designation is just a tax status and it's still people working together for a common mission and a common purpose. And so when I was managing up to 45 people and I had millions of dollars in my budget and then I'd come from an organization where I had much smaller budget, much smaller teams, but I heard the same complaints. I had the same challenges. I had heard the same opportunities. I heard the same excitement. And so that made me really dig into the idea that leadership development is leadership development. It doesn't matter if you're working for a community organization or a huge government organization or a corporation, um, the nuances may be a little bit different, but it's people. It's, it's funny because, you know, I think about, you know, a number of companies that have hired, hired us for work or, or things that we've done. And often in the interview, I'll get asked a question like, well, what experience do you have in blah, blah, blah industry? You know, in this, you know, and you know, we really want somebody with specific industry expertise. And, and my question back is, so if you're looking for specific industry strategy, yeah, I'm probably not the right, but, but is that what you're looking for? Or are you looking for more leadership work? Because leadership is not defined by industry. It's defined by behavior. It's defined by what you do. And, and, and it's funny because you'll see them turn their head. Like it's the first time they ever thought about it that way. And you know, this whole point is, is that, you know, we do a lot of work with nonprofits and you're right. I mean, it's one of the first things I have to help them understand is nonprofit is not a way of operating. It's just, a, it's, it's just a tax status. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I love everything you're saying because that's like, do you want me to poke holes in the leadership development? Because that's what I'm good at. Like if yeah. you want me to come in here and go, really? Why? That's why you hire me. If you want somebody and probably why they hire you, you know, if you want somebody to go, yeah, we've always done it this way. And I totally understand your jargon. Then you need to get someone there. But oh, I, no. lo- I love the ones that will that will, you know, say, yeah, you know, we need to do something different. We're stuck, you know, and and, you know, <laughs> people aren't evolving. And so why do you? Well, we've always done it this way and you don't want to change. Well, no, because this works for us. But you just said that it's not working for you. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I know. And I remember working for a person a while ago at one of my nonprofits and he's a wonderful, wonderful human. But he told me, "Eh, we just we just never really make budget. It's just that's just fine. I'm like, we're nonprofit. Like, um, I'm not sure that's how we should operate. (laughs) Yeah, it's time for a different yeah, you just operate, operated like that, you know, and then working for a corporation, like, well, we just always make budget. Like, okay, that's fine, but let's push the envelope. Like that's where the, that's where I get excited. Yeah. And, and, and change is required, but change is hard. It, they, they'll, they'll, they'll bring in because they know they need it, but they don't really want to do it. <laughs> yeah. I remember the first time I, I was tapped to lead a strategic plan. So I gathered my team together and I'm, you know, typical, right? We're going to have this big visioning retreat. We're going to think about all these ideas. And the very first question from one of my, um, one of my people said, um, well, what's our budget? Like, well, that's the whole point of a strategic plan, right? To think about what you want to do and then put the budget behind it. We need the money. She said, no, I can't think unless we have a budget. I thought, well, we're going to have to have a re-education because we've got to think broadly. Otherwise, how are we going to move the needle in what we're trying to do? And decide what you're going to do and then figure out what you have and then what what steps you got to take. Absolutely. It, it is some different things. So, you know, and, and your other commentary is so true is that, you know, one thing I've learned is that Every time I start with a new company, I'll hear, but we're different. And every time I'm 10 minutes into the work, they have all the same problems, right? There really is no difference. So, so you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, whether it was the small company, a big company, you saw all these things that were common. Um, can you highlight some of those? What are some of the, some of the most common, like, you know, pros and cons or, or the, the, you know, good leadership behaviors that you see that are fairly common and, and some of the bad ones, what are some of the bad habits that seem to replicate themselves every time you look at an organization? Yeah, gosh, that's a really good question. How long do you have? Um, <laughs> uh, we got, we, well, we still have, um, you know, like uh, another 25 minutes. So go. Oh, good. Okay. We got a lot of time to talk about it. Well, that's like looking at the environment, right? There's canaries in the coal mine. There's coral reef that start dying. And then you start looking at leadership. And I would say the first thing to me is that across the board, we make change way too hard. Like there is a time when there's an IT integration that needs to happen or, you know, big project management, project management. I'm totally behind change management. eh, Sometimes I'm behind. It's good. You know, strategic planning, we make that, you know, that's, that's a big thing, right? Strategic planning should be a big thing, but generally 90% of the time, change does not need need to be as hard as we make it. Um, and, And it becomes hard because we don't put parameters around it and we make it as extras. We make it as like extra part of people's job rather than my contention is the leaders that I have seen that are truly effective. And again, does not mean job title, but the leaders that I've seen who are effective are the people who lead change because that's what it's about. If you're not innovating and leading change, I mean, that's what Deming said such a long time ago, right? We're going to see the competition coming up behind us. I mean, if you're not there with new ideas or sourcing new ideas from your people, like, what are you doing? Like you can do budgets and manage people and you need to do all that. But 
that's what I saw across the board is leaders who dug in and really understood that change needs a process, needs accountability, needs people to buy in, and then it needs people to make decisions. That's the other thing I'll say is, is the absence of a decision, just like in nature, nature abhors a vacuum, leadership and progress abhors the absence of a decision. Is it going to be always right? No, my goodness, what decision is always right? I mean, ask my kids, I'm wrong all the time, but at least I made a decision, especially right now in COVID. Oh my goodness, who's led through COVID? Nobody. <laughs> so let's make a decision. Um, so that's what I would say, change, decision. And then from the bad side, I would say, I mean, this is kind of classic, but it just amazes me how much it still raises its head is the, is the lack of knowing who your people are. You have got to be walking, you know, it's management by walking around. It's getting out of your office. It's getting off your phone. My goodness. If, I mean, that's, this sounds really basic and it's not, um, it is making people recognize that you want to know more than just your name, their name. You want to know about them. You want to know what makes them tick. You want to understand what makes them vulnerable. And you want to understand how you can best utilize their talents for the organization and the progress you want to make. Yeah. You know, you're getting to really the the point of of connection, right? And Mm -hmm. and it's funny because I almost think that the two things that we've just talked about are hand in hand, you know, change. Yeah. We make change too hard yet. There is there is a lot of habit that's in place. People don't like to change habits. People don't like people generally don't like change, you know, in organizations. And so, you know, there is a there is a right and a wrong way, and there will still always be this kind of resistance to it that we have to find a way to overcome and recognizing that ahead of time becomes very, very important. But mm-hmm. if we consider your second part of this lack of knowing your people, I think if you don't know your people, change is even harder yet. You know, mm-hmm. um, back to Deming, you know, one, one of the, the, the key things he says in change is you got to have advocates. You've got to have mm-hmm. people at all different levels that are advocates for the change you're trying, people who've bought into it, people who, who believe in it, who will get those other people off. I, I've always said there are three people, three kinds of people in any kind of change scenario. The ones that get it, the ones that have the potential to get it, but don't get it today, and the ones who are never going to get it. And I mm. want to focus on that middle group, right? You take the ones mm. that get it, you help, you, 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 you team with them, and you get more and more of the people in that middle group over the finish line. And that third group, well, they're probably just not going to survive it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And that all affects the culture. And as a leader, you are responsible for the culture of the people around you, whether that's your team, whether it's your department or things like that. And that um, knowing, I love the three categories you have, because that's what it's about. And and I wish that we weren't as afraid, as afraid of change as we are um, because it is constant and because it is necessary. And so you need to spend some time breaking down those barriers when there's not a big change happening. So when there is, there's trust built in. So do you, I mean, it, there are organizations today that seem like they're designed on continuous change. And even if you looked at, if you go all the way back to, um, you know, Toyota, when we first started hearing what we call here in the U.S. lean, and Japanese called it something else, you know, those were built on continuous change models. It's just that change is the norm. It's not an event that happens once in a while, but change is the norm. We're always continually trying to improve. And if that improvement is a new piece of software that everybody has to learn, that's what it is. And if the improvement is just a minor little tweak to something, that's also continuous improvement. Um, do you find that, that there are certain types of organizations that just are better you know, positioned for that than others? And what would be those differences? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think organizations that produce products like manufacturing organizations, like when I've worked down in limestone mines and, and people where you have, you know, integrated process management, you have really quantitative measures and qualitative, um, well, I shouldn't say qualitative, um, quality, quality control on the other side. So it's really easy to measure and say, you know, did we make our mark? No, we didn't make quality product. Okay, we have to change it. So it becomes objective, becomes out of our emotional realm. I think the organizations, whether they're nonprofit or whether some of these organizations like our B corporations that have some sustainability and environmental ethic built in, once you add some of these I won't say gray areas, but areas that don't have really easily quantifiable terms, then we start to have debates or feelings around, have we pushed the envelope, you know, maybe too far or enough? I mean, how do you innovate innovate around changing homeless um, situations or heart health, or, you know, you can measure hospital output, but can you measure the change in health in people? I mean, it's, it's becomes harder. So I think that's where the change becomes more nebulous. And then you start to deal with passion in another way. Um, People are passionate about limestone. Don't get me wrong. I know those people, (laughs) but people are super passionate about, you know, habitat destruction or, um, you know, equitable, equitable access and, and social justice. Like that is a whole different level of passion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to start diving into the book just a little bit, but we're already up on a point where um, we need to take our next break. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Julie Henry, and we're going to start learning some specific, um, some specific leadership techniques from the animals themselves and how we can put them into play into our own businesses. We'll be right back. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at the Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership and execution. See you there. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team and your organization through clarity, purpose and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Julie Henry. So, okay, Julie, so now we've got this book. And I think it was fairly, it it was recently published, right? When did this come out? Yes, it was published January 4th this year, 2022. Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is brand new. And I feel privileged to have a nice hardcover copy of it here on my desk. Um, Why now? 
Well, I finally had enough experience, life lessons, experience with animals and experience with different uh, clients to put it down on paper. You know, this came to me when I was in college. I tested it for 10 years working at zoos and aquariums. So I got the leadership side through the animal lens. And then I went the opposite way. I went on my own as a consultant for 15 years. And so I had a huge array. I mean, I work with insurance clients and limestone mines, as I mentioned earlier in restaurants. And I recognize that, you know, when people are tired and in the middle of shift work or like literally underground in a mine. And if I can say, let me, let me tell you about this through the eyes of a cheetah, it catches their attention differently. So after 25 years, I thought, okay, I have enough credibility as a, like, I, I care deeply about leadership development and I care deeply about animals and wildlife and wild places. It was only when I felt like I could do them their due, both of them, <laughs> uh, that I wanted to put it down on paper more broadly. Well, and that, that's, I think it's that science piece of it that makes it really interesting on the animals because what you didn't do is you didn't do what, what I would describe as some of the cliched approaches of animals. Oh, you know, the, the corporate lion and the corporate, you know, teddy bear and the corporate this and that. And, you know, you're either this type or that type or whatever. Uh, but instead, you really applied some real science. So, you know, I wonder if you could share some of the stories. There's some great case studies, great stories in here. And honestly, some animals I've never heard of before. I don't know about, about others. That makes me so happy. Yeah, you know, I purposely did not want to take animals and say, you know, which one are you? Because I've been through those workshops too. And you know what? Sometimes I'm this animal and sometimes I'm not. But for example, if I can take uh, an animal like the naked mole rat. So the naked mole rat, like literally scientists discover it over, over a century ago. And it's such a crazy looking animal that they thought it was a mutation. They didn't even think it was a real animal until we rediscovered it in the 50s. And it's this little tiny um, mammal. It lives under ground in Africa and it's naked because it doesn't really have a lot of hair. So it has to um, regulate its body temperature by piling up on each other. And so they live in these piles and they build tunnel systems. But what's so cool about naked mole rats is they live together in colonies like bees, right? There's a queen and then they, there's workers and things like that. Um, and so when I go to zoos and aquariums or zoos, I should say, I'm always looking for the naked mole rats. I might be the only person looking for the naked mole rats <laughs> and I have naked mole rat stuffed animals. But when I talk to people about teamwork and I'm listening and I'm hearing how their teams work and, and then they're feeling um, either nervous or embarrassed or, gosh, my team doesn't function like it should, but it's actually working better. So those are my teams of naked mole rats. I'm saying to them, like, do not apologize for your team and dig into what makes you unique as a leader, what makes your team unique. Get those people there. Like, this is the whole, you know, basis of diversity. This is why we need people around the table who are different because together you become a naked mole rat team. And you know what? Naked mole rats are highly, highly functional. Well, yeah. And, and something you said a minute ago really sparked an interesting thought too, is you use the term colony. They live in colonies. Bees live in colonies. Well, you know, you got me thinking, but a business is a colony. If you really think mm -hmm. about it, I mean, every aspect of the business brings something important that needs, and it needs to perform right or the business fails. Otherwise, if it doesn't, why would you even have that in your business? Yeah, absolutely. And haven't you had those times when you've been working with clients or working in business and you're like, uh, I don't even, you know, I've discovered this and I should just, I'm not going to say anything. And then it comes back. You know, that's like the naked mole rat to me too. Like, oh, we just keep rediscovering it and rediscovering it. We should pay attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? What else? So naked mole rats, I, like, like I said, I'd never even heard of that one uh, before your book. <laughs> so um, what are some of the other favorites that you have that you highlight? 
So, you know, in every, I've got, the book is change teamwork and resilience and each third has kind of a funky animal. Um, the team, the naked mole rats um, fit into the teamwork side and on the resilience side, I love to talk about sea cucumbers. So I don't know if you're familiar with sea cucumbers. I know what a sea cucumber is. We, we used to maintain a, um, a saltwater aquarium in the sea, the sea cucumber. I always had a couple sea cucumbers. Uh, interesting story. So my, my, my daughter had a chance to go um, with National Geographic on a trip to Australia and the Great Barrier Reef. And I have a photograph of her somewhere. She's she's in her, her mask and gear and she's up just above the water, but in the water and she's holding up this huge sea cucumber. I didn't even know they got that big. Um, oh. But let's not, wait, let's not assume that, that our, our <laughs> audience know what a sea cucumber is. That sounds like something you'd throw in a salad and certainly this is not something you'd want to eat. Um, <laughs> Right? Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. I, like your daughter, I'm going to go with her on her next trip. Um, yeah, you know, so resilience to me is that secret sauce of leadership. You know, it's the piece that we say all the time. We need to be resilient. We need to flex our leadership muscle. But often we stop at self-care. And self-care is a part of resilience, but it's not the whole piece. Yeah. It's the piece that I think we are. The reason I talk about unbreakable laws is because there are things that are biologically certain. They're biologically certain, such as cheetahs, right? I talk about cheetahs and resilience as well. Cheetahs cannot run forever at top speed. In fact, they run like literally less than a minute at top speed and then they rest. And so why as leaders, do we think we can just go and go and go and push ourselves, not our teams, but we, we, we do this all the time. We push ourselves and think that we're not going to break down mentally, emotionally, physically, because we are, we are built to rest. And so the sea cucumber is a small sausage-like invertebrate, doesn't have any bones um, living or doesn't, yeah, doesn't have any bones living on the bottom of the seafloor. And sea cucumbers look too super innocuous. They don't even look like an animal, but if it's threatened, it can literally throw up its guts. Okay. It's eviscerate, throw up its guts. And that will either scare off the predator or if the predator actually eats its guts, it can regrow its own guts. Okay, so the most innocuous looking thing that doesn't even look like an animal is literally built not just to survive, but to thrive another day. And so I use that as reassurance, but also just that biological certainty that when leaders are up against the wall, they're leading change, they're leading teams, and it becomes so difficult. They are built for resilience and they are built to survive and thrive another day. And so that it's a biological certainty. And and what are your, what are your things that you're putting in place? You need to put those parameters in place. But at the end of the day, I tell people you can channel your inner sea cucumber. It's funny. Now I have this horrible picture of my head of somebody feeling threatened in the workplace and trying to throw up their inner guts. <laughs> yeah. But I felt like I should throw up, right? Like I'm so nervous to go to this presentation report to my owners, you know, <laughs> but I'm going to make it. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I love the cheat analogy too, um, because we do try to run at full speed. And, and I think the world tries to dictate that to some degree. It seems there is no break. I was just having this conversation with somebody the other night, and we were talking about how, you know, technology has been such a wonderful thing, and it, it carries its drawbacks. I, you know, when when I first started working, I'll start dating myself. Um, a few years in, the the company I was with got its first fax machine. First fax machine. Now, okay, um, for any younger listeners out there that don't know what a fax <laughs> machine was, it was a device that you would plug into your phone line and you basically put a piece of paper in one end. It would scan it and print out a piece of paper at the other. And it would take, you know, in the original version, to send one page would take about an hour. <laughs> 
Yep. <laughs> right. And um, and we thought, oh, this was really revolutionary, revolutionizing things because we don't have to wait days for mail, which was, <laughs> the, which, which, you know, and again, for those who are listening, who don't understand, mail is that thing where you have a box at the end of your street that people bring <laughs> stuff and stick it in your box once in a while. <laughs> right. So, uh-huh. so, you know, how things have changed and along with that has come the need for instant gratification. You know, I sent an email to this person three minutes ago. Why haven't they responded? Right? Why hasn't this been taken care of? And there's a lot of stress. And so it's kind of like, again, that cheetah always running. And, and guess what? We're not going to give the cheetah the chance to break. The cheetah has to keep running. Yeah. And we, it's our fault as a culture, right? I mean, if you Google cheetah, I will bet the images that come up are of the cheetah running. But if you read anything about a cheetah, majority of its time, it is resting. Okay. So we are glorifying, right? The running. It's like glorification of being busy. I mean, how many of us are, we are busy and we do not, I am not advocating for false positivity. I'm totally fine when you're not, that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm advocating for vulnerability and standing up and going, I'm done. I'm done running. I have got to rest in the shade because if I don't, I cannot come back stronger, just like the cheetah did. And here's the other thing I say about cheetahs, you know, what do we do when we we work so hard and then we didn't quite get it right. The cheetah doesn't always catch her prey. But if I work really hard, chances are that I'm beating myself up. Like, oh gosh, I really should have studied more for this team meeting or my presentation didn't go very well, or I didn't make budget and I beat myself up. Okay. Chances are, I don't know for sure, but chances are that Cheetah is not beating herself up and she's resting. She's just resting and then she'll do it better the next time. And we don't let ourselves off the hook as much as we should. Yeah, it's it's a good analogy. I was at the San Diego Zoo, and they do a uh, at the at the um, safari park, and they do a demo where you can watch the cheetah run. It's really an amazing thing. And I remember the um, the the zoologist that was that was because they talk about the cheetah first before you ever see it. So you go through the whole thing, and he said, you know, I think he said something like they rest. I don't. I thought at the time he was joking, but maybe he wasn't. He said like twenty three hours and forty five minutes a day are at rest. You know, and the the other 15 minutes is hunting for his food. Yeah, right. You know, because like it takes a lot of effort and they're perfectly designed to run as fast as they can. Just like we are perfectly designed to lead. But you've got to remember that you're, you know, leading by example too. Well, and it, and it, it comes down to choice. I think it's another thing that we don't do a very good job at is, is we make everything important, which is why we have to run all the time. We don't prioritize. And, you know, if you made the choice as to what you need to run after, you can then choose your battles and go after the stuff that's going to be the most productive. Run for those things. But don't run for the stuff that doesn't get you anywhere. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, that's, that takes us right back to our New Zealand talk earlier. I mean, that's what I learned in New Zealand. Like what I thought was important is not important to everybody else. So I'm the only one out here running. <laughs> so I am going to rest. And then if I choose, like you're saying, and prioritize, then I'm going to be better when I am running. And because I'll go back to the fact that it is a biological certainty, you are going to rest, whether you are proactive or reactive, you're going to rest. Yeah. So, um, any other animals you want to highlight out of the book? This is fun. I'm enjoying <laughs> you know, it. 
Oh yeah, no, I'm having such a good time. You know, I'll say some of the um, unusual animals are spiders. I talk about spiders when it talks about when I talk about change um, because. I happen to love spiders, but not everybody feels the same way. Um, but I st- even as much as I love spiders, I'm not very keen on them living in my house. I'd rather them live outside and, you know, especially when they're as big as my hands. Um, but sure. um, t- spiders to me help people rethink the, the, what we were talking about before. There are people that are afraid of change. And um, spiders are nature's yellow light in thinking like, hold up, why am I reacting this way to the spider? I'm afraid, but why? Like, is it threatening me? Am I threatening it? What is it? And so how can we take that yellow light that the spider offers us when we think about change? Like, hold up, people are afraid of change. Let me dig in a little deeper and understand why um, and then go forward. So it's that opportunity to pause. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that. And as I think about why I don't like spiders, I don't hate them. I mean, my, my, my daughter is deathly afraid of them. She's going to love me <laughs> saying that, but what is it? And it's really funny. It, it's kind of like, we just don't like the way they look. I mean, if you really think about it, right? We just don't really like the way we don't want them on our skin. It's on the wall in the corner, 10 feet away. It's not going to be on your skin, right? Or it's out in the yard, but we just don't like the way they look. And I think the same is true of change. We don't like the way it looks. Yeah, I love that. You're exactly right. And, you know, like that spider that lives in my house, that's as big as my hand. Guess what? It eats eats the cockroaches here in Florida. You know, I'm okay with that. So what is that change going to bring me? It's going to bring me this positive result if I can lean into it and just get through that uncomfortability. So for those of you thinking about moving to Florida, there are spiders the size of your hand that actually (laughs) eat the cockroaches, which is not a bad thing. They do. And they're jumping spiders and they're really fast. I had to learn that the hard way. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Couldn't imagine it. Couldn't imagine it. Excellent. So now the book isn't just a bunch of analogies though, too. I mean, you have, you kind of have some exercises and some thought exercises, um, you know, for our listeners today who are, who are really considering some of the leadership stuff that's out there, um, you know, what would be a, uh, what would be a great, you know, starting point for them? You know, if, if, if they wanted to rethink their leadership and say, okay, how are we managing change? How are we managing communication? How are we managing these other things? Are we really being good leaders? Where, where's a good, place for them to start? Yeah. You know, I, I take leaders first through a process. It's actually based on um, three species of mangroves, but I take them through a process on how to reimagine how to lead change with a definitive process. And so it's three distinct phases, three distinct ways to not only assess where you are and then build your plan, but then commit and communicate to action. So that's the change process that I get them through first, because like we talked about earlier, my um, drum, if you will, is that I think leadership is about leading change. And then with the teamwork thing, piece is that, you know, I think to lead change, you have to lead teams. It doesn't matter if they work for you or if they're outside your organization, but in order to lead teams effectively, I encourage people to start with, I do it in the book, a, um, a personal SWOT analysis, really thinking about your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, specifically when it comes to leading teams, not just this general thing. What am I good at? What am I not good at? That's not very helpful. Dial it in, make it quantitative, specifically to leading teams with the change you're trying to lead. And then the last piece is I take them through a, um, what we call in the scientific world, an ethogram, but it's a time management study or it's a time study, I should say, but looking at an assessment of your time over three days and looking where your resiliency strategies exist and where you need to make changes in order to manage your energy mm-hmm. around your resilience strategies. Because in order to lead change, you have to lead teams. In order to lead teams, you have to be resilient as a leader. That's excellent. It's excellent. Well, um, we've gotten to the end of our time together. 
we're we can talk for a time. long time. <laughs> I know it's it, it, it's I, I actually I always love when we can get into a good solid conversation these shows and I've had I've been blessed by having so many great guests on and uh, just having being able to add you to the mix has, has been really a lot of fun and you know uh, perhaps you can join us again sometime in the future. That'd be great. I'd be honored. I really appreciate our conversation today. So let's um let's let's talk about the book one last time. Um, Wisdom from the Wild by Julie C. Henry, if you're, if you're looking it up, um, you say the nine unbreakable laws of leadership from the animal kingdom. So uh, we really didn't even get under the, uh, into the unbreakable laws. So that's probably, again, a whole other show. Uh, it can be found where? can be found on Amazon, your local Barnes and Nobles, in airports as you're walking through and traveling again now, or your favorite local independent bookstore can order it as well. Excellent. Excellent. And um Folks, I'm going to tell you, I've, I've taken a look at it and I'm kind of partway in and it's a book that is just, it's well-written, it's interesting, and you're going to learn some things about some animals you've never heard of before um, or never thought of in that particular way. So it's, it's well worth it. Julie, again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. So uh, stay tuned. We've got more great episodes coming in the uh, next several weeks and thanks for listening. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.